FM and online at WPKN.org. Stay tuned for the Organic Farm Stand, coming right up. Corn in the fields, and listen to the rice when the wind blows across the water. King harvest is sure they come. I work for the unions, cause she's so good to me. WPKN's Organic Farm Stand, which comes to you the first and third Thursday of each month from 12 to 1. My name is Richard Hill, and we have a fantastic panel today. We have Laura Modlin here. She's our dogged girl reporter. Girl? <laughs> yeah, so, I, I know. Dogged girl? I'm really skirting close to the edge there with that one. <laughs> Um, no, actually, and we're here with also with Chris Ferriero, who is a, a co-producer and co-host, and great to have him here. Hey, Richard. And, of course, Steve Munno from Masaro Farm. He is the director of Masaro Farm, and he joins us each show to give us his small farm update and all kinds of other information. Steve, great to have you. Great to be here. Fantastic. So, um, yeah, so I have a question before we get started. Where did the expression um, dogged boy reporter, did that appear in a comic book, in a TV show, or in a movie? Does anybody have the answer to that? Dogged boy reporter. Uh, I don't know. It sounds like no. something something from like Superman comics or something. Uh-huh. I think. Anybody have another an opinion about that? I've never heard of it before. <laughs> Nor have I. Okay. <laughs> I'm thinking yeah. of Intrepid Reporter. That but, might be something from the comic book. I, I, I just don't like tying girl and dog. <laughs> <It's> not, <laughs> <laughs> I, I hear that. But of course, we're saying dogged, uh, which is not technically <laughs> a dog or even related to a dog. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so... We have a really great show today. This is the first Thursday of the month, and of course that means that Vincent K. will be here with the Frozen Bee Report. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, we know that tomorrow is going to be a wicked cold day, and I'm not sure. I think that goes on for a few days. Steve, is that weather, uh, is it just 24 hours? Is it 48 hours that we're going to go into, like, sub-zero weather? Yeah, 
it looks like 48 hours. It's going to be real cold tomorrow and drop, you know, even colder tomorrow night. And Saturday is going to be a real cold day, too. And then it looks like things will um, get to, you know, a normal-ish for this January, you know, back to sort of mild temperatures in the 30s and 40s. So just a, a brief freeze coming up for us. <laughs> it's, it's bizarre. I mean, that to me is just the strangest thing that the weather would, you know, give us this dip into the ice water for, for such a short time and then go back through the mild weather. But anyway, that one day we'll get a meteorologist on here to tackle those naughty questions. I think um, we're the only part of the country that isn't experiencing these deep freezes. Oh, you mean the winter? Yeah. Is, the winter's been tough elsewhere. Right, yep, and yeah. we've had it pretty easy. Yes, yeah. we have, indeed. This deep freeze is interrupting our faux winter. <laughs> That's, yeah, I guess it's it's sort of a... Yeah, it's like coming up on regular temperatures tomorrow and Saturday <laughs> for the winter. Yeah, it's a cold shower is what well, it is, yeah. Um, yes. You know, New England always gives lots of time for more winter, though, so you never know what can happen <laughs> in, in March or even April and sometimes May, so there's lots of time. Yeah, that's sadly, but, you know, interestingly true. So before we go to our small farms report, which actually is the winter farm rep- report, um, let's hear from our intrepid woman reporter. <laughs> How about well, just reporter? Yeah, that's <laughs> no, good. No, no, we got to stay with the we got to stay with the Superman model there. So, um, call me Clark Kent. Right, okay, Claire, Lois, Cla- Lois Lane. Then, okay, yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, with a short update on all kinds of interesting things, Laura, what what do you have for us? Well, I have been looking into the light. First of all, because um, we've all been noticing that the days are the daylight's getting longer. And I was really surprised to find out that between December 21st, the shortest day to now, we've we've gained 55 minutes of daylight. And Mm. I also noticed that um, that sunrise being earlier is um, is slower than sunset being later. So, yeah, that's an odd thing. Maybe Steve has. I don't. I have no idea why. Yeah, but um, but we now have today. The sunrise was at seven in the morning, and the sunsets at five ten p.m. with ten hours and ten minutes of daylight. But we still have until June twenty first to get fifteen hours and thirteen minutes of daylight. So. Yeah, so we better get cracking. We better get cracking, you know. We got everyone light your candles and <laughs> um but I also was was looking into this this weekend's full moon on Sunday the 5th. It's the full snow moon, which is named because that because of the snow on the ground, but I guess that it's not really appropriate here this year. But the name was given by tribes in North America who also call it the hunger moon due to scarcity of food and inability to hunt in the snow. Who, who named it originally? It was um, some tribes in North America. Uh-huh. And um, the the thing that I didn't, that I thought was really interesting that makes this Sunday, this Sunday's moon unique is that um, 
It's the second and final micro full moon of 2023, and which is when the moon reaches fullness nearly at its farthest point from Earth, the apogee. And um, we've, we, the first one was in, in January, uh, the full wolf moon. And, um, and, and so then this year, we also uniquely have 13 full moons because in August, we have a blue moon. Um, and and we also have four supermoons this year, and one of them is July 3rd, and then there's August 1st. So we have two in August, and we have the full blue moon on August 30th, which is right at the tail end of the Perseid meteors shower. And luck, and fortunately, this year the Perseid the the um, the peak of the Perseid meteor shower is August 11th to 13th, when the, the moon will be only at 10% illuminated. So that'll be good. And then the final supermoon is September 29th, the harvest moon. What is a supermoon? Hmm. A supermoon is when the moon is at perigee, which is the closest point to the Earth in its orbit. Ah, so that's when it's that giant. That's when you bloated. see those big moons, yeah. <laughs> a big. Yeah, just they just appear bigger. They're the same size. <laughs> it's it's it didn't actually bl- blow up and get swollen. I, I I'm not sure. We better ask find <laughs> Clark Kent and ask him. <laughs> <laughs> well, get on that story. We got to okay. find get, get that for okay next, for next, next time. Yeah. All right. So let's that excellent report, Laura. Thank yeah, you. Thanks, very much. Laura. Let's Thank go to Steve uh, at Masaro Farm and find out how you're faring through the winter so far and what's coming up with this pothole that you're going to have for the next few days. Yes, well, you know, so th- thus far it's been, because it's been so mild, we've really, um, you know, been able to harvest more than expected out of our high tunnels. We've had really beautiful lettuce. Um, carrots get super sweet in the winter and and they've been great uh, in our tunnels. We just have them in the ground there. So instead of pulling them all out of the ground in the fall, and keeping them, you know, in a cooler for storage, um, which does fine. But, you know, you really maximize the flavor. Uh, and then we're using the, the ground as storage uh, by keeping them in the soil and then harvesting them as needed over the winter. Um, so those have been great. We've still been harvesting radishes from our tunnels, uh, arugula, um, some kale. We just finished up uh, harvesting our chard, and that's kind of done for the winter. So we've been able to do more of that than expected this last month, which has been great, uh, offering it at our store and at the farmer's market. Uh, but now, at, you know, with it getting colder, we'll probably pull back a little bit and, and go with our normal plan of kind of harvesting every other week instead of every week. Uh, and we've got, you know, our frost blankets and mini hoops inside our tunnels, giving an extra layer of protection uh, for our crops for this deep freeze coming. So, you know, it's sunny outside right now. And, and just before we got on the radio, I was outside opening up our tunnel doors because, you know, it, it's 35 degrees, but full sun. So inside it's 65 and 70 degrees. Mm. So, I, you know, we don't want it to get that warm. We don't want to start, uh, you know, getting, um, you know, moisture developing from, from uh, you know, evaporation and then mildew and, and mold and such. So I've opened up uh, the tunnels a little bit to get some fresh air in, not let it get too hot. Um, but I'm going to make sure it's sealed real good. And, you know, we, I won't be opening up uh, these next couple of days when it's going to get so cold and not get above freezing. Um 
So, so that's what we're looking at now. And then otherwise, you know, still just digging into the crop plans and, and, um, you know, new things for this year. And, uh, and then as we've talked about, uh, you know, conference things coming up and we're just always, you know, there's always opportunities to learn. And so, you know, we got to stay on top of, uh, you know, what's, what's coming this year and, and listening to other folks share their knowledge. And so, you know, we're excited about the NOFA conference coming up. So I want to put on my NOFA hat for, for two sort of exciting announcements. For sure. Um, so uh, we, we just sent out the word yesterday and today that uh, we will be honoring and we're pl- proud to announce that Mike Nadu is the, is the winner of uh, this year's uh, annual Bill Deucing Organic Living on Earth Award. Uh, so, and he'll be honored at the conference on uh, Saturday, March 11th at Wesleyan University. And, you know, you all know Mike very well, and mm-hmm. I, I've been lucky enough to work with him over the years with his work in organic land care. He's been a, a real leader uh, getting the organic land care program running. That's standards that, that you know teach lands, landscapers and, and land managers how to you know do this in an organic way and, and and not be using the pesticides and really trying to mimic nature and our ecosystems and make sure our ecosystems are thriving uh, with the work we do wherever it is you know in managing land so uh, we're excited to make that announcement and um, you know to honor him this year at the at the conference. And then the the other announcement, you know, you've asked me previously, who who is the keynote? What's happening? And you know, we we weren't sure what we were going to do for a keynote this year. Just uh, you know, it's being the first year we're back in person, and, and we had kind of a, a shared keynote uh, virtually with the other with the other NOFA chapters, and um, you know, back in January. But uh, we are excited to share that Leah Peniman will All deliver right. this year's oh. keynote. Yeah, that's so, great. You, you know, many. Yeah, so that's very exciting. She'll be there March 11th in person. Uh, many of you might know her as the author of Farming Wild Black. Um, she also has a new book coming out, uh, Black Earth Wisdom. Uh, so uh, that, that she will be available that, uh, to talk about that book, and, and um, that book will be available at the conference, I believe, as well. Fabulous. So that's, that's the news from NOPA, on the NOPA front. Excellent. And just remind us about the logistics for the conference so we can keep... There's sort of two parts to the conference. We have an in-person sort of normal traditional conference day, Saturday, March 11th at Wesleyan University in Middletown all day long. There'll be workshops, vendors, uh, lunch to have at the conference and, and with Leah as a keynote and, and Mike Nadu being honored with the award. But then, you know, the, the week, the weekdays prior, March 6th through 10, Monday through Friday, we'll have virtual workshops. Um, so, you know, you can, you can tune in from anywhere you, you register for the conference, ctnofa.org, and you'll have access to all of that. So, you know, if you can attend some of the, the virtual the workshops, great. You know, I think we'll have three a day, uh, Monday through Friday at noon and three and seven, uh, uh in the, you know, from afternoon into evening. And, um, you, know, you don't have to go to all of them, but you'll have access to them later, the recorded versions, too. So uh, uh-huh. and then we'll have our, you, you know, with, for the in-person conference, there'll be lots of workshops to choose from. So, um, yeah, really excited to get back together in person for our conference and to, you know, have, have Leah on hand as a keynote and, and Mike being honored. So ctnofa.org uh, to register for the conference. That's fantastic. Yeah, we had Leah on the air with us uh, some years ago. And uh, that was a, quite a coup because she has, at that time, she I think she snuck away from her teaching job and joined us at the noon hour. But we're hoping to get her back. Um, 
possibly for the next show of this month here. But uh, I'm not sure how that no, those negotiations are going. Uh, if if you've made contact with her or not, Steve. But hopefully, yeah, we'll work on that. Yeah, that's wonderful. All right, and uh, so questions for Steve. Yes, Laura. And Chris. <laughs> I beat you by a little bit. Um, She's so, intrepid, you know. I'm you intrepid. Gotta, I'm yeah. on the ball here. And dogged. And dogged. <laughs> so, Steve, I really enjoyed meeting you last Friday at the farm, and I really, really have been enjoying the food I got, the carrots and red leaf lettuce and the kale. And so I want to thank you for providing that substance for, you know, in the winter, which is nice. But my question is, is rain water as helpful for raising the water table as snow is, or is there too much runoff or what? Mm, that's, a, that's a good question. Yeah, the I mean, I think, you know, in the winter, we'd like to get the, the snow because it, it, it sort of raises the water table more gradually as it melts. So I think it sort of depends, you know, which is better. It sort of depends how the rain comes. I think, you know, this winter, we've had plenty of rain here, and at least in, in our area here in, in the New Haven County. Um, there's been plenty of rain, and there, the storms haven't been too uh, overwhelming. You know, we have, we've had lots of extreme rain in the years uh, over the over recent years, but this this winter we haven't had you know four or five inches of rain at once, and so when you get that kind of heavy rain, it doesn't do as good of a job at, at filling up the water table because it, it runs off. You know, when you get too much rain at once, it, it simply can't filter in uh, that way, and so it can cause erosion and it can just run off and and such, and you know can and end up in the storm drains and things. Whereas the, the I think we've been having good rain this winter. Uh, we might rather have uh, some snow, uh, depending on your preferences. And I think snow has a tendency to, you know, just uh, more gradually fill up that, that water table and fill the reservoirs. But uh, this winter, I, I'd say we've, we've had quality rain in terms of uh, the water table and reservoirs. Yay. Uh, yeah. And what about uh, the importance of snow in terms hey, of... Vincent, it's Chris. Oh, we got all kinds of craziness going on here because... Pretty good. Wait well, a second, let me... All right, that's a little better. Um, what about the uh, yeah the role of snow in terms of protecting the soil and potentially other uh, root crops or you know the the garlic which is planted in the fall? Like how wh what role does it play uh, just in terms of you know soil uh, preservation and, and nutrition? Yeah, I, I think it's a um it's a role snow plays. It can play in protecting the soil, um, you know, giving a ground cover, you know, because what happens now when it's been so mild, uh, we're not getting a consistent frozen cover, um, but the, the the snow can protect the soil, um, you know, in these winter months. We're, we're not getting any of that protected cover. So that makes our, our cover crops even, even more important so that our soil isn't bare, you know, and our, our just our land management practices are even important, more important if we're going to be, exposed to, to cold and rain and not have the, the coverage of the snow. I'd also say, you know, some people know that um, snow has, uh, rain has nitrogen too, but snow, snow contains some nitrogen. So it's sort of a, a free feeder for your crop, a free flow feeding to your garden. Uh, you know, most of our atmosphere is made up of nitrogen. I think it's 78 or 79% nitrogen and 21% oxygen and a mix of some other things in there for that last percentage. Uh, but when that 
when it comes down to snow, it's sort of a, a you know free fertilizer for your for your soil uh, and, a, and a nice slow release. Whereas the, the rain is coming down quicker and, and and infiltrating quicker, we get a slow release of nitrogen into our soil over the winter, uh, which is a nice boost for us. Well, so we're missing out on that right now. Very interesting. Uh, yep, yeah, Steve. Um, before we uh, actually we have Vincent, um, but we'll introduce him in one minute. I just have a question that is. Um, with the extreme drop in temperature for a few days, are are you concerned about the uh, preserving what you have growing? Uh, you know, it, yes, but we've got our strategies set up, so we're you know we're ready all the time in the winter, we, and we start this you know even in in October, November. So things that are planted, you know, we want them to get. Um, acclimated to the cold so the frost blankets that we have that we cover them up with um you know we don't start covering them up in the fall with the first little bit of cold we we need them to get used to cold conditions and that we we need them to to harden up to that um and and then protect them and cover them up with um you know when these these deeper colds come in so that's one of the reasons why i don't let it stay 70 80 degrees on a sunny day i got to open up and make sure it stays cool and then we get fresh air and air exchange so I'm not really worried about it for, you know, these two days. If we were to have uh, seven days in a row, if we had a real cold stretch coming, you know, maybe we would have gone in there and, and harvested out some uh, some things that are a little more vulnerable. So lettuce is the, is the one that's a, a bit more vulnerable than, say, the carrots that are in the soil or the radishes in the soil. Um, but for these two days, I think they're going to be okay. So, But we do have our double layer of frost cover o- over all of the crops, um, that are in the tunnels for now. So I think, you know, our history and experience tells us that, that they should be fine through this for these two days. All right. Thank you so much, Steve. Stand by. And we're going to have uh, Vincent Kay join us. Now, Vincent Kay is the proprietor of Swords into Plowshares Honey. He joins us each first Thursday of the month, giving us his wonderful report. In this, in this case, getting ready for a frozen B situation. <laughs> yeah. Aww. So sad. Well, we're going to find out. <laughs> Vincent, w- w- how are you preparing for the deep freeze? <laughs> well, if I could just comment on, on some of the things you were saying too with Steve. I mean, um, you know, the snow that we don't have is certainly what we could have used because it's sort of like organic fertilizer, like bone meal or uh, feather meal or even blood meal. You know, it's a slow release of nitrogen that that snow allows uh, back into the soil. It's, whereas rain is a quick flash, more like your commercial fertilizers. Necessary, <laughs> um, but it's there and then it's gone. So it's kind of an interesting, um, I was just kind of thinking about snow and I wish we had some because uh, the garlic, although I think it can certainly do well with the cold, um, there are other factors like frost or ice heaves which tend to kind of move the clove around as it freezes and then thaws and then freezes again, because there's a lot of moisture in the soil right now. And then there's also things like wind and the wind can burn and damage things just, just as much as uh, any ice or, or uh, cold weather as well. So um, that's an issue. Um, you know, we checked the garlic uh, uh, that we're, we are growing and, we did get a little bit of burn damage on that Christmas cold that we had that snapped then. Um, this is shorter, hopefully, but, um, you know, it's the garlic's a little further out of the ground now. <laughs> so we planted as late as we really could manage. But um, for those who planted, you know, well into December, they might be uh, have a little bit of an edge on us. 
Um, we have two two plants, uh, two fields that are that are sprouted just above, just poking out. So I think things will be okay. But there is some damage from the last cold, and um, so it, it is what it is. I mean, the one thing that's kind of interesting is we're all in it together because you know there's not a heck of a lot you can do. So the entire state of Connecticut is kind of like our garlic crop is uh, at risk right now. Mm. Um, getting but, back to the bees. Yeah. Um, uh, the bees, um, you know, like a warm-blooded animal, um, you know, they, they have to be insulated. And, you know, the placement of hives when you first set them out as a commitment to be a beekeeper is, again, really important because they really should be out of that west and northwest wind, uh, have some kind of berm or some kind of windbreak. Because that in itself, um, it may be 20 degrees out, but if it's, you know, 10 degrees because of the wind factor... Well, that's going to affect them as if it were 10 degrees, because as a unit, they do react like a warm-blooded animal, um, even though they're insects and they're cold-blooded. It's, it's the unit, the heat that they're creating inside the hive by consuming honey. And that dissipation of heat or their attempts to try to thermoregulate that heat by consuming more honey is what gets them into trouble. So um, things are good. Um, we were working with uh, a bee yard actually um, yesterday in Woodbridge, just checking in there. And uh, I said to my helper, John, I said, um, uh, you know, I don't know if that hive's alive. And, uh, you know, it's pretty warm out. And, you know, they're really not flying like some of the other hives. Because, um, you know, in the, in the dead of winter, the hives will fly. They have to defecate and, you know, avoid fecal matter and, and you know, do that kind of, uh, you know, uh, take out the dead bees. They they have a force of uh, a cast of uh, workers that go through certain stages. And one of the stages is, you know, the undertaker stage. And so these bees, you know, that's their job is to remove um, the natural um, uh, decline of population, the, the mortality within the hive over the period of the winter, because the outer layers um, tend to die first. And, um, but I said, you know, I don't think that hive's alive. And I, and I removed the lid, and they came busting out, like, into my face, like, what are you doing, you idiot? You know, I mean, don't you understand that we're trying to keep this warm in here? And, you know, I, I, then I thought about it afterwards, and I said, yes, it's February. It's not January. It's not December. And we're well into the change of light. And you probably noticed it. The days are getting longer. And the bees know this and so what's happening inside the hive is that the queen has started to lay eggs again and to replace those outer layers of bees that have have, have perished in, from the cold exposure even inside the hive and so what's happening is they're sitting on those eggs and incubating them at a much higher temperature which is why they're not out flying <laughs> they need as many bees as possible um to to incubate those eggs and so it was a very interesting um you know, a reminder that, you know, you, you think that you're on top of everything, but, you know, it, it's um, their cycle has changed. Um, and it mostly because of the light. And um, it's interesting that most of the clusters now are located inside the hive. They've moved and shifted. So the warm weather we've had is probably good for that. But they've shifted inside the hive to the south or southeast end of the hive where they get the most sunlight and the most warmth. So it's interesting to note that all of the clusters that we have um, have moved in that direction. And I just find that so fascinating. So is that true of all the hives I mean, that they that they're not flying and they're they're hunkering down and trying to protect the new eggs? 
Well, again, it, nothing, nothing like people. No one is the same. Uh, everyone is unique. And so the hives are unique. And so the, the size of the cluster and the amount of heat that they're um, creating by the size, just the sheer size of the cluster, is never the same from hive to hive. So that, that factor in itself would allow certain hives to trickle out and fly a little bit. And uh, the really strong ones, of course, well, they have excess bees, so they can send out other bees to do other chores and still have the other bees sitting on the eggs. So it's kind of interesting, you know, kind of um, nothing is ever static. You know, it's, it's always changing probably day by day, um, mm. but certainly hive by hive. You know, it's, uh, yeah. it's interesting. Not uniform. Any que- any other no. questions for? Uh, um, actually, Vincent? I I do have a question, Vincent. I, I meant to um, ask you about this ahead of time, but um, do you have yeah. um, anything to say about the honeybee vaccine that that's been discussed? Yeah, you know, we've been we've been a lot of people have been asking me about this. I you know the little I have read, I mean, it, it's essentially to combat the disease American fowl brood. American, American what? Fowl brood is a, American fowl brood. It's a terrible, terrible disease um, that's in the gut of the, the bees. And once you have it, once they have it, um, it's, it's not transmissible to people. It's not transmissible to honey. But it, the spores of which can be in the honey uh, in the hive. So it's tricky and it's extremely contagious from hive to hive. But the government um, uh, recommends um, burning the hive and then burying the ashes deep Ooh. in the ground. So this is how contagious and dangerous it is. Um, there are some people that believe that you can treat um, for it with antibiotics, and it will work to some extent. Um, we, have, we test every bee yard for every year, um, probably multiple times. They have these test kits. Um, and so we, we have yet to find it for a number of years, but we have had it, you know, years and years ago. Um, and we, we took care of it. I mean, we did burn those hives. And it, it breaks your heart, but that's what you have to do. And um, sterilize the equipment also if you're going to reuse it, which you can do with a, a, a roofing torch or, or, you know, some kind of flamethrower that, you know, you really singes the equipment and, and, yeah, and burns it a little bit. Um, but the other thing is, uh, you know, the vaccine is meant to somehow combat fall boot. And I don't really know how they would administer a vaccine to an insect. Um, and, you know, I'm sure I'll find out eventually, but to an insect that only lives 30 to 45 days. So you're constantly recycling um uh, these bees, um, and, and the queen is constantly laying new eggs. So I don't know how a vaccination would really take place in the same way that we know or define the word vaccinate. You know, I, I just don't know. If it's some kind of, um, you know, prophylactic treatment, um, then I get that. But how many times a year are we going to have to do that? And at what expense? And so how, um, yeah, and how would you how would you administer it? I mean, would it be like probably oral? in some kind of dusting or powder form uh-huh. or a vapor? Um, the same th- way that the antibiotics um, teramycin are now used to treat fall brood, quote unquote treat uh, fall brood. Um, it's uh, it's mixed with the powdered sugar, and then you dust the hives, and um, that's how uh, the bees ingest it, and that's how it's spread around the antibiotic. So I suspect that this vaccination would probably uh, be administered in a similar way. Um, but again, how long is it good for inside the hive? 
when you constantly have bees that are, you know, uh, hatching and then dying, hatching and dying. I mean, that's just their, their normal cycle. How, you know, how often can you do this? And, and the other question, of course, is, is it toxic to the honey, um, yeah. you know, that you're going to harvest um, for human consumption? Because not only are the antibiotics and the miticides that we use to keep the bees alive um, important, but they're also toxic um, to human consumption. And we can't use anything while the honey boxes are in production. Um, so that's how we keep the food supply um, for human consumption clean and wholesome. And, and uh, you know, you start messing around by adding these chemicals during honey production, which is a very short time in Connecticut. It's about a month and a half. But nonetheless, those mites are breeding, or if you have disease, it's breeding. And, you know, the temptation by many is to, is to treat anyhow. And you really should not do that. That's, that's a no-no. And um, so anyhow. Um, I don't really know much about the administration of the um, the vaccine, um, but I'm sure I'll find out soon enough. So are you talking about this new vaccine um, that was just in the news? Yes. I believe that's what Chris was asking. Yes. So yeah. it's administered to the queen. Oh. Okay. It's fed to the queen. It's not like okay. spread around the way you were. Um, sorry, I just joined this. Phone yeah. This sure. Before but, you go on, uh, Kim, let's let's introduce you. We're, yeah. We're, we're, yeah. Yes. And, uh, Kim, Kim Stoner is with us. Um, oh, Steve, okay. Steve, why don't you introduce Kimberly? Because you, you know, you're so conversant with her work and uh, uh, CV, let's say, curriculum vitae. <laughs> All right. Well, I, yes, I'm. I'm very glad to introduce uh, Kim Stoner um, to to the show, and uh, she's been here before. But I should say we are really excited to have her on in an official capacity with uh, Connecticut Nova, uh, as of just a couple a couple months now, uh, getting to work in our uh, advocacy and legislation and such. But but Kim is uh, widely known for her work in. Um, with the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. And uh, we were lucky enough to have her and some of her team here at Masaro over the years doing some uh, bee and pollinator studies. So um, Kim, glad to have you with us. Okay, thank you. Yeah, um, I wasn't expecting to be talking about vaccination of, of bees, but um, <laughs> well, <can't, laughs> that, that was not what you told me I was gonna talk about, but yeah. uh, that's fine. Um, so, yeah, so this vaccination yeah. against foul brood, um, my understanding is that, uh, let's see, uh, that it would be fed to the queen and that it would then um, be spread through the, um, through the colony. Um, and uh, so uh, they genetically, would Genetically in her progeny? Uh, yeah, I believe that's right. Let me let me just check here. Um, uh, this is amazing. This is research in real time. It's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess the other question I have is what what happens when when a hive swarms and you end up with a new queen? Do you have to vaccinate mm. um, repeatedly throughout the season or through supersedure? You would probably have to. Yeah, I mean, it it seems like it is. It is being passed down through the queen. So when you when the hive swarms and you get a new queen, uh, that queen would not have been vaccinated. So probably that's right. You would, um, I don't know, either 
uh, requeen the hive with a, a queen that has been vaccinated, or uh, I guess that's probably what you would do if if that's what you want to do is to control the foul brood. Yeah. And how is it administered to the queen? Is it an oral? Uh, you said yeah, fe- they're fed. fed to her in a sugar patty. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Okay. Okay. Well, I was sort of right in the sense it was administered through feeding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, well, wow, that's fascinating. And uh, salsa. It'd be great if it, it'd be great if, even better if it works. <laughs> <laughs> and, that's and, true. And, and if it were expensive or inexpensive enough for us to afford it, and you know how all that's going to happen is going to be a miracle. But I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> and Kim, just to, to follow up on what Vincent was saying before about uh, contaminating the honey, it, does this? method of administering it and having it passed on to the progeny, as Vincent said, is that going to, will that keep us clear of any contamination of the honey? I believe that it should because it's, it's, it's a vaccination to stimulate the immune system of the bees. So, um, it's, it's not, it's not like spreading an antibiotic through the hive. So it shouldn't contaminate the honey. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Kim, I know you have a lot of things to talk about, some of the work you've been doing. So maybe maybe we should just give you a uh, free reign here, and then if we have questions, we'll jump in. Okay. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to speak. Um, I have been working um, with Connecticut NOFA, on what we are calling the Connecticut Environmental Rights Amendment to the state constitution. So this is a, a big a big thing to try and do. Um, so uh, Connecticut does not have any statement of environmental rights in our constitution. There are there are statutes with environmental rights. And we're one of only two states that doesn't have it in our constitution. So this would put into the the Bill of Rights of the Connecticut Constitution on the same level as like the right to freedom of speech or freedom of religion, um, the en- environmental rights. So I'll just, if it's okay, I'll just read a little bit of what the, the amendment would say. Indeed. Each person of the state of Connecticut shall have an individual right to clean and healthy air, water, soil, and environment, a stable climate, and self-sustaining ecosystems for the benefit of public health, safety, and the general welfare. The state shall not infringe upon these rights. The state shall protect these rights equitably for all people, regardless of race, ethnicity, tribal membership status, gender, socioeconomics, or geography. Mm-hmm. Wow. So that's the first part. And then there's a part that um, uh, creates a trust, a public trust, to maintain the natural resources for all people, including present and future generations. What form would that trust take and how would it be funded? So it's, it's, a, um, it's part of the public trust doctrine. So, um, so it's not a money trust it's um that the state and municipalities and 
and public political divisions thereof, that's what it says, um, <laughs> needs to um, uh, protect these resources as a, um, a trust that all the, the, all the people, present and future, can, draw, can, can rely upon. So it's the same kind of public trust as is used for, um, the, for example, uh, the water system. There's, there's a, there was a, a, a considerable fight, I'm told, about making the water of Connecticut into a public trust. So that just means that the public has an interest in protecting this. Mm-hmm. And so what agency does that give the public in terms of remediating or challenging some policy or action of the state government or municipal governments for that matter? Yeah. So, um, uh, I should preface this by saying I am not a lawyer. <laughs> As you've just heard, I am a scientist who works on on uh, uh, various environmental things, pesticide things. I'm an entomologist. But um, uh, so my understanding of this is that it gives um, people, individual people and communities of people who could be injured by any um, action of the state or the municipalities standing to um, sue the government agencies and um, make sure that they have um, that they protect the the rights of the people and that they um, correct uh, problems that are are continuing to in to injure the, the people. So that's my understanding of it. Um, as Wait, you can tell, I, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not doing this very fluently. But, but yeah, it puts the rights in the people. So um, we have uh, statutes now that rely upon, like, the attorney general to sue if the, if the mm. state is not enforcing uh, the... Uh, protections that that the state is committed to enforce, but this would put the rights in the people, and it puts the people. Mostly, what it does, in my understanding, from places that have these similar kinds of amendments, is it it puts the 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 need to address um, the protection for the people up front when uh, say a new facility is being built or expanded so that people have to have to have a voice at the beginning and that gives people a lot more power to prevent damage from being done as opposed to trying to get it fixed after it's already proven that it's harming people. Steve, did you have a question or a thought on this? Well, you know, one of the things with the legislation is, it, it, of course, it takes time to get going. So I guess I'm curious, Kim, if you could speak more to, you know, where we are in the process, how long this has been going on, and, and what we can expect, and what, then what kind of support you, you need, um, you know, going forward. Okay, yeah. Um, so amending the Constitution of the state 
um, takes a lot. And that means that once we do it, then it would take a lot to change it. Um, but um, so uh, in order, we've just done this with early voting. Um, so in that case, uh, the uh, a bill um, had to be passed in two successive sessions of the state legislature, and then it went to a referendum. Um, and so there is a bill right now in the uh, Environment Committee of the state legislature. It's HJ 13. It, and so um, I'm hoping that the Environment Committee will have a public hearing that will give people an opportunity to speak to this and then vote to pass it on. It's got to go through the Environment Committee. And then it's got to go through the Government Administration and Elections Committee. Any constitutional amendment has to do that. Then it has to go to the floor of both houses and pass in both houses. And then it has to do the same thing again next year, probably, unless it passes with more than 75% of the legislators in both houses. And then it goes to a referendum. So it's a big, a big process. Yeah. <laughs> And just to, you know, to compare it to the uh, early voting thing that you re referenced, the, that process reached the referendum stage, and I believe it passed. Um, I'm not yeah. sure if there was a, a, a required margin of yes versus no votes for that. But after the public weighs in in a general election, is it a done deal, or does something else have to happen? So um, I believe that at that point, it is a done deal. The early voting um, referendum just empowered the legislature then to make rules about early voting. So now they're talking about how early would early voting be and that kind of thing. Mm. But I don't believe there's anything along those lines that would be involved in after the the referendum for this um, Connecticut Environmental Rights Amendment. Yeah. Well, you know, just interesting thing that might have sort of be related to this is that a bunch of years ago, I guess back in 2016, there was sort of the threat that Connecticut might start allowing fracking waste to pass either pass through the state or to be actually accepted in the state to go into god knows what facility and um there was a, a fight that took place at the municipal level and i think a, a, a majority of the towns in connecticut passed uh, ordinances or uh, referenda saying that they they re would refuse the fracking waste in their you know in their town and then ultimately, I think the state, uh, the, the DEEP, uh, reject, you know, decided that, you know, that there was no way they were going to accept. I'm not sure if it took the form of legislation. I think it did, ultimately. But that was a case, I would imagine, that if the state decided to accept the fracking waste, that many citizens would want to file suit. Yeah, so... Um, so this environmental rights amendment is part of like a national um, effort to get green amendments to the constitutions of, of different states. 
And uh, fracking is part of that story. So um, in Pennsylvania, uh, their green amendment to the Constitution was used when the state legislature of Pennsylvania passed a law that essentially would have allowed fracking everywhere that like prohibited municipalities from zoning to keep fracking out that would have allowed it on state land, all kinds of amazing expansions of fracking. And um, the Delaware Riverkeeper, uh, Maya Van Rossum, who's now like the, the leader of these efforts for green amendments, um, sued the state and said that under their green amendments, um, the the state legislature could not overpower the the rights of the people and the municipalities. There were municipalities who were part of lawsuit to protect their people from fracking. So fracking is very much a part of the history of this of mm. of how green amendments got going across the country. Uh, Kim, your phone is. A Kind of going in and out a bit. I'm not sure if you can shift your your uh, location a bit. Might I can stand nearer the window. I am in my my office at the experiment station, which is in the basement. It's, wow. it's yeah, much, it's much better right better now. now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Questions for Kim? Anybody? Uh, yes, Laura. Um, so you had mentioned other states adopting similar things. Do you um, know how many other states and if they've been effective? And how do you measure the success of something like this? Okay, yeah. So um, the most recent state is New York State, which may be of interest to your listeners, because I know you have a lot of listeners in New York State. Um, so New York uh, passed their Environmental Rights Amendment in November of 2021, and they had a similar process. So it went through their legislature twice and passed in a referendum with like 70% of the vote. So that shows it can be done. Um, and um, they, and right now, the courts are interpreting their new Environmental Rights Amendment, and um, they have a case going on right now having to do with the expansion of a landfill that is um, harming the surrounding communities with um, terrible amounts of odor. And so hmm. they, the um, initial uh, decision was that the uh, environmental rights amendment does apply. And so now the case is going to go further in the courts to figure out exactly, you know, where both sides will present all the information and, uh, and the case will get decided. But um, so that's, that's a recent one. There are um, green amendments, as I mentioned, in Pennsylvania and in Montana that were passed in their constitutions in the early 1970s. And in both cases, they um, were interpreted by the courts in such a way that they were not very effective for a long time until some very substantial cases were brought to the state courts, um, particularly the one I just mentioned about fracking, which was 2013, 2014, sometime like that. And um, 
so um, what Maya Van Rossum says is it sort of brought this amendment to the state constitution, which had been lying there inactive, into life. And there have been a number of uh, cases since then that have um, that is, have increased the ability of communities and people and municipalities too to um, protect the resources in in Pennsylvania. So it's still working its way through through their courts and and with various cases. And in Montana, it sort of lay dormant until there was a gold mine that was pre- that was proposed that was going to cause a tremendous amount of pollution to the headwaters of the Blackwater River. And they that was like 1999. So their amendment had been around for quite a while. Um, But then um, the courts recognized that this was going to be a violation of their constitutional amendment. And that sort of brought it to life in Montana. I have a beekeeping question. Oh, okay. 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 <laughs> I have a beekeeping question. That's Vincent that, speaking. Yep. This is Vincent, Vincent K. Um, briefly, I know we don't have much time left, but um, does this uh, new legislation, I mean, it sounds good. It sounds like it might be a little too good to be true, but in any event, um, how is it going to um, be applied to the use, uh, the endemic use of, of pesticides and chemicals on people's lawns? on uh, commercial agriculture, mm. which might be spraying, and that drips into, somebody's y- drips into somebody's yard. Um, do those people have a right to sue because they bought that house and it should be um, free and clear of chemicals and their well water as well? So I'm just wondering, you know, how is this going to apply? Because, you know, I mean, the environment we live in is not pure here in Connecticut. So, I mean, is this either going to be applied um, evenly or... Um, just held on the books for, you know, kind of municipal um, future projects or something like that. And before you answer, hmm. Kim, that's a great question, Vincent. I hope we get time to answer it. But we only have uh, a minute and a half. So, <laughs> so and we got to beat. We got to. We're, we're playing. We're playing. Beat the automation. That's, so okay. we got to um, get out of so here. I will give a short answer, which is um, it, it will play out in the court. And you know mm-hmm. it will ha- it it will have to um, get tested uh, yeah. once it passes. Yeah. All right. Well, we I see the uh, the red uh, warning light has come on. So I want to <laughs> thank everybody for a wonderful show today, and uh, thank Laura for her report, and Steve, of course, for the small farmers report. Chris for co-producing with me today. What a great time we've have have had here on the Organic Farm Stand. My name is Richard Hill. Join us again when? Uh, 16th. The 16th. The 16th. Of See, February. Our intrepid reporter got that one. Okay. <laughs> she has a calendar in her head. <laughs> Thanks all. See you soon. I've been looking out for your help. Because if you don't have it, what good is having wealth? Well, By the look in your eyes, baby. This is the Gaia-Gram, environmental headlines from around a planet in crisis. 
Rio Verde, Foothills, Arizona, a community of around 1,000 residents outside Scottsdale, has had its main water supply shut off due to the extreme drought affecting the region. Until recently, Rio Verde Foothills purchased all of its water from Scottsdale, since it did not own a water reservoir of its own. However, Scottsdale shut off the flow of water to the suburb earlier this month, citing its own water supply needs during this historic drought period. According to the New York Times, residents have been trying to conserve water in any way they can, from eating on paper plates and skipping showers to installing rainwater collection systems on their homes. Meanwhile, an Arizona State modeling report found that developers planning to build homes in the desert west of Phoenix don't have enough groundwater supplies to move forward with their plans. Plans to construct homes west of the White Tank Mountains will require alternative sources of water to proceed as the state grapples with a historic mega drought and water shortages. Water authorities in the western U.S. don't have a crystal ball, but if western states do not agree on a plan to safeguard the Colorado River, the source of the region's vitality, there won't be enough water for anyone. If nothing is done, there is a real possibility water levels in both the Lake Meads and Powell reservoirs will drop so low in the next two years that water will no longer flow downstream to the 40 million people in the west who rely on the Colorado River. AP is reporting, in a desperate effort to save a seabird species in Hawaii from rising ocean waters, scientists are moving chicks to a new island hundreds of miles away. Moving species to save them, once considered taboo, is quickly gaining traction as climate change upends habitats. Similar relocations are being suggested for birds, lizards, butterflies, and flowers. The United States Attorney's Office of Minnesota said that two Minnesota farmers are accused of fraudulently selling more than $46 million in crops falsely touted as organic. Organic farming uses non-GMO seeds and crops that are grown without chemicals and fertilizers. It generates higher prices at market than non-organic crops. In a battle that will define the U.S. oil market this decade, on one side, the combination of rising sales of electric vehicles, more efficient conventional cars, and the impact of working from home is pushing down gasoline demand. But on the other side, the ever-growing popularity of plastics combined with a growing population is boosting consumption of petrochemicals. If electric vehicles win the battle, oil demand will peak soon, helping to meet global climate change goals by reducing consumption of fossil fuels. For now, however, plastics have the upper hand, keeping overall oil demand growing. Greenpeace accused the billionaires attending this week's World Economic Forum in Davos of ecological hypocrisy for hyping their fight against climate change even as they arrive in carbon-spewing private jets. Greenpeace said that the rich and powerful flock to Davos in ultra-polluting, socially inequitable private jets to discuss climate and inequality behind closed doors. The European Commission is drafting a new law targeting the region's green industries, hoping to make Europe the home of clean tech and innovation. The aim is to focus investment on strategic projects along the entire supply chain by putting forward a new Net Zero Industry Act. This will provide a structural solution to boost the resources available for upstream research, innovation, and strategic industrial projects key to reaching net zero. 
And Los Angeles Sanitation rolled out its new composting program as part of the new state mandate aimed at getting organic waste out of the landfills. All of its 750,000 customers must now toss their food and food-soiled paper, such as a pizza box, into their green bin, along with their yard waste. This was the Gaia-Gram. Environmental headlines from around a planet in crisis. WPKN programming is supported by Novamont, a Connecticut company, manufacturers of Matterbee, a family of completely biodegradable and compostable bioplastics, which are being used to provide low environmental impact solutions for everyday products. More information is available at materbi.com slash en.